Our reading this evening is Titus and chapter 3. Titus and chapter 3, commencing at verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But, Avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me, salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our third and final study in the Epistle of Paul to Titus, having already completed a study of Paul's two letters to Timothy. And as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often jointly referred to as the pastoral epistles perhaps not only because they are addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they provide guidance as to the qualities required in pastors and the responsibilities of pastors. We know that both Timothy and, and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith. We know that they both had pastoral responsibility, Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be acceptable in God's sight. There were some men in leadership positions who had departed 
from the truth. So it was very important for men such as Timothy and Titus to take a stand for the truth. Last month in our second study in Titus, we saw how important it is that those who are called to minister God's word have as their aim that those who hear them will comprehend and will believe and will obey the word of God. Those who minister God's word have that responsibility. But it's also every hearer's responsibility to respond positively to that which they hear. <clears throat> we also saw that, and I quote, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life summed up in the nutshell. In a nutshell, is it not? And we also saw how we are to be zealous of good works, earnestly striving to do those things which please God and which help our fellow believers, our fellow believers and our fellow men. Well, this evening we shall be studying the whole of Titus chapter 3 and we shall see once more how important it is for believers to be good witnesses, to adorn their profession by the way they live. We are to obey them that have the rule over us, as long as this doesn't involve breaking God's law. And we are to do all we can to live at peace with all men. And we shall also see how the church is to deal with those who oppose sound teaching. <clears throat> Firstly then, we see Paul instructing Titus to teach believers to be good citizens. He wrote, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Believers on Crete were to be told how they were expected to obey the civil authorities on that island and to be prepared to contribute to Christian society. Now, this wasn't something that only believers on Crete were expected to do, since we know that Paul told believers in Rome of their obligations to society as well. If you turn to Romans chapter 13, Romans 13, and look at verses 1 to 7, you'll find that Paul gave the following instructions there. And I quote, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. God has ordained that people are to be governed. And we are to view any governing body as ordained of God, provided that we're not obliged to do anything that goes against God's laws, we are to be law-abiding citizens. Now, this may not be onerous if we live in a democracy or even under a benign dictatorship, but it can, of course, be difficult living in a society where, for example, atheism is the state religion or where immorality is rife or where true justice cannot be obtained. And so what is the believer to do in such situations? Well, when Paul wrote to Roman believers, he was writing to men and women living in a society that was far from utopian. Roman society was known for its polytheism, for its moral laxity, and for its brutality. It was no picnic being a Christian in Rome. Now, Crete was a Roman province, so Roman law would have applied there when Paul wrote to Titus. And yet we see Paul telling all those under Roman rule that they should submit to that rule. Now, does this mean that believers are never to become involved in a rebellion against an unjust regime? Was it wrong for Oliver Cromwell and the Roundheads to depose Charles I? If not, would it be wrong for believers to rebel against any corrupt regime? Well, I have to confess that I don't have all the answers to those questions, but we do have to come to terms with what the Bible teaches, namely that the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. Perhaps as believers we should take the view that regime change and the deposing of corrupt rulers should basically be left to God. It was Daniel who said this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the season. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. <clears throat> now, what about being ready to every good work? Being ready to every good work. What does this mean for the believer? Well, surely it means that we should be ready to do good in the communities in which we live, albeit in such a way as not to compromise our testimony. Our lives intersect with unbelievers in many ways, and an act of kindness on our part, a helping hand, will not go unnoticed. Galatians 6 and verse 10 tells us this, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And we must also remember the words of James, as we find them recorded in Chapter 2 of his epistle, commencing at verse 14, James wrote this, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, 
depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Now that passage is speaking principally of believers' responsibilities to each other, but I'm convinced that we can apply the principles to relationships with unbelievers as well. Now believers are not to be merely do-gooders, for we have an obligation, do we not, to preach the gospel, to tell others about their sin and their need of a saviour. But our witness must be coupled with both civil obedience and good works. Regrettably, there have been professing believers who have concentrated so much on good works that they have let slip that which is most vital, the preaching of the gospel. Now you're likely to have heard of what's known as the social gospel movement, a term applied to that movement which was most prominent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and which attempted to apply Christian ethics to social problems. Theologically, those most prominent in that movement were, for the most part, post-millennialists who believed that the second coming couldn't take place until humankind had rid itself of social evils and they were also theologically liberal. Now I'm not saying that this is true of all those believers today who see social change as something to be fought for, but our priority should be to preach the gospel of God's grace. Only when the hearts of men and women are made new will society truly improve. Now, does our behaviour as believers outshine that of those yet outside of Christ? Are we changed people living changed lives? Paul said that believers are, and I quote, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Well, how easy we might find it to speak ill of others and how subtle we can be. We can disguise what we say so that it isn't overtly critical but just inferred. Well, someone once said that if you can't say something nice about someone, then it's best to say nothing at all. And I don't think we'd go far wrong if we followed that advice. And what about brawling? Are any of us brawlers? The underlying Greek word has the sense of strife and contention. So brawlers are those who are ever ready to argue the toss, to disagree almost as it were a matter of principle. Believers should be gentle, showing meekness to all, desiring to live at peace with all men as far as may be possible. We are to be those who seek to turn away wrath with a soft answer. Those who go out of their way to avoid strife unless there is no genuine alternative. Those who are peacemakers. Believers should be ever mindful that it's only by the grace of God that we are no longer what we once were. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now one of the great dangers facing believers is self-righteousness, since it's so easy to look at unbelievers and think ourselves better than them. The truth is that if God hadn't intervened in our lives, we would still be in our sins. We would still be living ungodly lives. Paul told the believers in Corinth this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul refers again to the washing of believers here in Titus 3. He said, But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In our last study, I, study, I said that Titus chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13 could be said to sum up the Christian life. And could we not also say that verses 4 to 7 of Titus chapter 3 sum up the gospel? It's only because of the kindness and love of God, whom we again see described as our saviour, that men and women and boys and girls can have their sin forgiven. People are not saved on the basis of anything good that they have done, for there are no works that sinful man can do to be accounted righteous before God. We must rely solely on his mercy. Salvation is according to his mercy. When Paul refers to the appearing of God's kindness and love, he is referring to the first advent of the Saviour. It's not that God never showed kindness and love before then, but that his kindness and love is most clearly seen in the coming of Christ to our fallen world. John the Baptist said this of the Lord Jesus, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Believers are saved by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Hearts are changed and sins are washed away. We are cleansed from all our sins and appear clean in God's sight. By grace we are justified, meaning that we are declared righteous and we are accounted heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is assured. We have a certain hope of eternal life. <coughs> and we see again here in Titus, do we not, the cooperation of all three persons of the Godhead in our salvation. Paul explains how believers are saved by 
regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he, that is God the Father, shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. <clears throat> now those of you who have been present for all of the studies in Timothy and Titus may recall me saying previously that the phrase, this is a faithful saying, or is a true saying, is unique to these pastoral epistles and is found in them on five separate occasions. We find it three times in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 15, in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 9. It's also found in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, and here again in Titus 3 and verse 8. And we have seen, have we not, how Paul uses that expression to emphasize key truths that are not open to any interpretation but must be undisputed by all real believers. And here in Titus 3, he uses the expression retrospectively. And by this I mean that Paul's use of the expression at the start of verse 8 is in reference to what he has just written rather than what he is about to write. So having just set out how it's only by the grace of God and the operation of his Holy Spirit that men and women become believers in God, Paul goes on to exhort Titus to teach such as have believed the necessity and benefit of maintaining good works. He wrote this, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Most of Titus chapter 2 and the first verses of Titus chapter 3 are taken up with the behaviour expected of believers both within the church and outside in the community. And so when Paul refers to these things here in Titus 3 and verse 8, he has in mind that conduct which is to be expected of those who profess faith in Christ. And notice Paul tells Titus this, these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Now, what are we to understand by that expression, to affirm constantly? Well, surely it means that Titus was to regularly remind those who professed faith in Christ that their lives should match up to their profession. It was to be a constant theme in his ministry. And this is something we need to come to terms with, that God wants ministers of the word to speak often on certain aspects of both doctrine and practice. As we have noticed before, if the Bible speaks much about something, then it's a sure indication that God wants us to be much concerned about it. In his epistles to both Timothy and Titus, we've seen Paul time and time again draw attention to the dangers of false teaching. And we'll come across it again in a moment. And surely this teaches us that we too must ever be on our guard against false teaching. Having spoken of things that are good and profitable, Paul goes on to mention things that are unprofitable. He wrote, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. 
When we considered 1 Timothy chapter 1, we saw from verse 4 of that chapter how Paul said this to Timothy, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in vain. In 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 to 5 we saw that Paul also said these words, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, <coughs> and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strifes, railings, evil surmising, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 16, Paul wrote this, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And in verse 22 of the, 23 of the same chapter, he wrote this, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And earlier in Titus, in chapter 1 and verse 14, we saw Paul speak about not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. There's much writing, is there not, about these things. There were men on Crete who professed to be men of God, but whose erroneous and convoluted teaching needed to be opposed because they turned men and women away from the truth. Elders were to be appointed by Titus in every city, so that false teachers throughout the island could be opposed. Many of these false teachers, we believe, were Judaizers who confused the Christians with their views on Jewish genealogy and with their insistence on adherence to what were but Jewish customs. There was little to be gained from debating these sorts of issues with those false teachers. Rather, it was profitable to refute false teaching by just concentrating on preaching the truth. Now, verses 10 and 11 of Titus 3 guide us as to how the churches are to deal with those who are in error. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverteth and sinneth being condemned of himself. But, to enable us to grasp what's being taught here, we need to be clear as to the meaning of that word heretic. In our English dictionary, you'll find that a heretic is described as a person who espouses a belief contrary to the authorised teaching of the religion to which that person purports to belong. And thus anyone who claimed to be a Christian but denied the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ would be termed a heretic. But does the original Greek word here in Titus have that same meaning? The original Greek word is hereticos, a word used to describe someone who makes a choice, but its meaning has progressed to refer to one who holds himself and his views as superior, someone who is a law unto himself, someone who is self-willed. In the church there can arise those who set themselves against the church leadership and its orthodox teaching. And these are the sort of people to whom Paul is referring here. 
Such people are to be warned about their conduct and if they refuse to submit to the church's teaching after two warnings, they are to be disciplined by being excommunicated from the church. They are condemned, are they not, by their own behaviour. <clears throat> there are some verses in 2 Thessalonians 3 which also guide us how to deal with factious people. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3 of that epistle, that's 2 Thessalonians, uh, uh, <coughs> can be stated as follows. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see, discipline should always be exercised with the hope of eventual restoration. We saw this, did we not, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, where Paul told Timothy this, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Discipline in the church is not something to be relished, but rather something that is only exercised after all other biblical alternatives have been exhausted. Now we see in verse 12 of Titus 3, Paul's hope that Titus would come to see him in Nicopolis, where Paul wanted to spend the winter. Paul wrote this, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. It seems that Paul had in mind to send either Artemis or Tychicus to Crete to temporarily oversee the work there so that Titus would be free to travel to see Paul in Nicopolis. We don't know anything about Artemis, but we learned quite a bit about Tychicus when we studied the last chapter of 2 Timothy. We know that Tychicus is first mentioned in Acts 20 and verse 4, where we're told he's, he was one of the men who accompanied Paul into Asia. We know from Ephesians 6 and verse 21 that he was, and I quote, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. And that this is expanded on somewhat in Colossians 4 and verse 7, where he's described as follows, a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. <clears throat> it seemed that Paul commissioned Tychicus to deliver some of his epistles, including his second epistle to Timothy. And when we read in 2 Timothy 4 verse 12 that Paul was sent into Ephesus, some feel that Paul intended that he would stay there to oversee the work if Timothy came to Rome as Paul hoped. So it's likely that Paul considered Tychicus as an able deputy for both Timothy and Titus. Now when Paul wrote, bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them, we, we don't know if those men had arrived in Crete already or not, possibly having delivered the epistle to Titus in, per, in person or if they were yet to arrive there. In either scenario, we see how Paul expected Titus to look after them while they were on the island making sure their needs were met, and then to ensure that they were helped on their way to wherever their eventual destination happened to be. Now, all we know about Zenus is that he was a lawyer, 
And although Zenos was a Roman name, this didn't necessarily mean that he was Roman by birth. But we know much more about Apollos, if as is likely he was the same Apollos who we first come across in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. We read there this. A certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. And Apollos is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, and verse 12, from which we hear that some men, probably converted under his ministry, had formed a faction, which would doubtless have appalled him as much as it did Paul. They said, as you will recall, we are of Apollos. Now, it's a privilege to look after God's ministers on their travels, and I'm sure that Titus would have seen to it that all necessary steps were taken so that Zenos and Apollos were well provided for. Now, the penultimate verse of the epistle to Titus reads thus. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. And most will agree that when Paul wrote let ours, he was referring to our people, meaning all the brethren on Crete. And thus the verse could read, and let our people also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Anyone here this evening uh, with an authorised version Bible with notes in the margin will see that the translators thought that this verse could also have been translated as follows. And let ours also learn to profess honest trades for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Well, the latter alternative is not invalid since it is right and proper that believers should be gainfully employed in work which will not only not conflict with their profession of faith but rather will witness to their faith. However, most agree that the verse is talking primarily about good works in general whereby God's people show by the way that they live that the love of God is shed abroad in their hearts. The New American Standard Bible translates the first part of that verse as follows. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. And whilst I'm not in any way recommended that version generally, I think that the rhyme it contains might help us to remember that we are to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. And Paul expresses a similar sentiment in Colossians 1 and verse 10 where he exhorts believers to, and I quote, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, the final verse of the epistle to Titus reads thus, All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And this shows us, does it not, the affection that pertained between fellow believers in those days, albeit that we know that they were separated by many miles. All those with Paul sent greetings to Titus and to Titus' fellow believers on Crete. And Paul desired that all those on Crete who were truly saved would continue to know the grace of God in their lives. Paul was ever desirous of drawing attention to the grace of God, having been such a beneficiary of it himself. And he knew that the very best thing that he could ask for Titus and others was that they would continue to know God's grace. Well, we've come to an end of our consideration of Titus chapter 3 this evening, and I trust that we have seen how important it is for those professing faith in Christ to adorn their profession with good behaviour. Believers are to be good citizens. We are to seek the welfare of all men, especially those of the household of faith. Believers are by no means saved by good works, but we evidence our salvation by good works. Well, we've also come to an end of our studies in the three pastoral epistles, one and two, Timothy and Titus, and I trust that what we have learned from these three epistles will stand us in good stead in our service for the Lord, and that we will ever be blessed with teaching that is both sound and sufficient. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.